You're listening to the feed. This is the feed. This is the feed. The feed. You're listening to the feed. In Markham. In Richmond Hill. You're listening to the feed in Vaughan. In Stouffville. In Woodbridge. In Unionville. This is the feed on 105.9 The Region. I'm Ann Romer with York Region's only news magazine show dedicated to the issues, events, and stories that matter to all of us who live and work here. Coming up, a good news update from Participation House hit hard by COVID-19. We also go inside a Markham company now making acrylic shields for retailers. Earlier this week, it was announced that uh, several parts of Ontario would be uh, permitted to step into stage two. We're joined now by Rod Phillips. He is the Minister of Finance in Ontario with how this was determined, who would be permitted to enter into stage two. Thanks for joining us on the feed, by the way. Thank you for having me back, Anne. So how was it determined uh, which areas, which regions, which parts of Ontario could move to stage two? So back at the end of April, and you'll recall, we laid out our, our framework for reopening the province, and it was really the roadmap that said, we're going to move forward when we have the public health indicators that we need, and those had to do with the case levels declining, that had to do with contact tracing and tracking being in place, uh, that had to do with making sure there was capacity in the healthcare system, in the hospitals. And about now two weeks ago, uh, working with public health officials, we decided that we could do that on a regional basis. You didn't have to be the whole province opening up at once, because obviously in a, in a province that's as big as California and Texas geographically combined, you know, you need to uh, understand that there are differences. So on Monday, we were able to make the announcement of about what it amounts to 24 of the 34 health regions in the province being able to open up. So that's important places like Ottawa and Kingston and London, Ontario. But the Golden Horseshoe uh, and other more border communities like Sarnia, Windsor, Niagara Falls, those are still in, going to be staying in what we call stage one, which is a less uh, less expansive opening. Now, as early as Monday, uh, we'll be looking at the, the numbers again. And, of course, the hope is that those cases keep going down. Uh, in terms of the caseload and that we other metrics are good and then we would be able to announce what other parts of the province will be able to move to that stage two opening which among other things means that you could have patios open uh, you could also get haircuts and, and other services so we're all hopeful that we're going to be able to move through this as quickly as possible but it depends on our progress. Some areas some municipalities have uh, not been too happy about feeling left out I think about Haldeman and Norfolk for example a little bit of a protest on the part of the mayors early this week. What's your response to that? Well, we understand that everybody wants to get back to normal, whatever the normal will be while we're still living with the COVID virus. But what's so important to remember, and we've seen this, we've looked very closely at what's happened around the world, that there are two things that happen consistently when we reopen uh, and when they reopen. The first is that there are going to continue to be flare-ups. And so we have to be sensitive. In the case of Haldeman, there was a significant flare-up, and so their numbers just didn't warrant a reopening. The other thing we know is that people are going to come back a little more slowly, and that's because this is really both about people's health but about people's confidence. So we're going to continue to rely on the health advice and consult and talk to uh, the local chief medical officers. I know I know in York Region, the, the chief medical officer acknowledged the progress but also acknowledged that we weren't quite there yet, and we all want to get to being able to you know, have access to the services we enjoy, but we have to do that in a healthy way and in a safe way because we don't want to have to go backwards. Stage two includes outdoor dine-in services, tour and guide services, outdoor splash pad 
ads in wading pools, swimming pools, opening beach access. Also, film and television production, funerals and weddings with a maximum of 10 people. How do you ensure that businesses and organizations are compliant? So this is also very important. We know that people's confidence is going to be based on believing that the the places that are open are living within the rules. And so our Ministry of Labor, and I have to give a bit of a shout-out to Monty McNaughton, our minister there, and his team, they've put out over a 100 sets of guidelines for all of the different businesses that would be open and saying, you know, here's how you could operate your hair salon. You know, for example, uh, when we go to get a haircut, which you could do, you know, in, in Kingston now, and hopefully we'll be able to do soon in, in, in my riding of Ajax or in New York region, there'll need to be personal protective equipment and a mask. So that means that some services, like, for instance, beard trimming, aren't going to be possible. So there are going to be some limitations. But each business has those sets of guidelines. And, of course, we're going to expect and inspect to make sure that people are living within those guidelines. I do, though, have to say, Anne, we really do have confidence and trust in, in our business operators. They want their businesses to be successful. So I think the vast majority are going to work within those rules. And all of us have to use common sense when we look at a place and say, do we think this is going to be safe? You know, a lot of businesses have been shuttered through this and they've not been earning money. How are they able to finance the changes that are mandatory in order for them to reopen? Well, we've tried to be really sensitive to that by providing, for example, access uh, to, to through a website to where they can get PPE so they don't have to, you know, go buy it at the most expensive place. Um, but listen, we really do understand and I hear directly all the time about the challenges that local businesses are facing. There's been a number of supports uh, put into place uh, just this week as well. Uh, we put in an eviction ban for our smaller businesses uh, so that they could take advantage of the rent subsidy program being offered by ourselves and the federal government. There's been loans provided, subsidies for staff provided, but none of that makes up for being able to open and be in business again, and we know that that's going to have challenges. And again, one thing I could just say to all of your listeners, Anne, is this is a time when we should all be buying local. This is a time when we should be trying to get out and support our local businesses because that's what they want. They don't want a subsidy from the government, even though we've been happy to provide those. They want the customers back. And we bear a certain responsibility as well to remember to social distance, to physical distance, to you know, wear whatever protective gear we feel is necessary for ourselves. You know, there's a lot of responsibility on you, the government, but also on us, those of us who are the citizens and, and proud Ontarians. You know, that is, uh, you know, such a key message. You know, government was able to and needed to shut down much of the economy because of the really imminent public health crisis. And listen, we've, we've seen that the province has been able to come through this you know, certainly what all we have to do is look at the places on our borders to see that, that the actions that 14.5 million people in Ontario took made a big difference. But that has to also, that trust and confidence that people have shown in the advice they're getting from public health, the advice they're getting from the government, that trust is being returned because we're saying now we all have to, you know, keep living within those rules. You know, as I said, we know that there are going to be flare-ups, even if we live within those rules, just because more people are coming together. But we also know our health system can support that and that our public health officials can track that. Um, but we just have to be so careful so we can keep going forward. Uh, we really don't want to have to go back into a lockdown situation. And I think that's on all of us to live within those rules. Our York Region listeners, followers are hanging on your every word, and I will rephrase the question so that maybe you're able to give a, a more definitive answer. What are the chances that next Monday, which is just a, a day or two from now, early next week, that we're going to hear that York Region can move into stage two? 
Well, and, and, and if I if I had that crystal ball, I'd, I'd be happy to show it to you and use it. I, as you know, my community of Ajax is also in, in Durham region, along with York, along with Halton and Peel and, and Toronto, uh, are all currently, you know, places where we'd like to see progress moving forward. But we will have to wait and see, you know, what our public health officials say, what the, what the data says. We had we had some some progress this this week, which is positive. But, you know, I think that framework that relied on on the health advice has served us well so far. I know it's frustrating for people. And, and I, the thing I say, you know, as I just talked particularly to business operators or those who are just, you know, being cooped up is, is no fun. But I say, you know, if we didn't listen to the health advice, and I some people say, well, why just can't we do this little thing different or this thing different? But where else would we be getting the advice from? It, it just makes sense. And so, so that we have to continue to rely on our public health officials. They're working together. And, and you know, we, we know that we're talking about weeks if we keep doing the right thing, whether it's next week or not, um, we will all wait and see. It's in our nature, I think, to look ahead. Am I able to ask you what some of the key components are of stage three? Well, the, what happens in stage three, I think that's, that's a great question, is first of all, there's some businesses that, that haven't been able to open because of the, the crowds and, and just the, the concerns around physical distancing. But by that time, we are hoping, uh, because remember, stage three would be two to four weeks after stage two, we will be hoping that the virus is sufficiently under control. So that could be everything from casinos, for example, which have been closed for some time, uh, but would have to operate under strict public health guidance. That would also include uh, rest restaurants and dining in. So it's it's lucky for us, I guess, that it's the summer, but not every restaurant has the capacity to have a patio. And so being able to actually dine in um, inside uh, one of our restaurants, things like art shows and cinemas with reduced capacities, uh, gyms, uh, which I know are important to a lot of people in indoor fitness facilities, outdoor outdoor fitness and, uh, and, uh, and even team sport practices are available in stage two, but would be opened up in stage three, water parks, uh, amusement parks, you know, all manner of, of things that are left. There are still, I have to say, I'm going to be some things like the very, very large gatherings of 10 and 20 and 30,000 people. You know, it may be a while uh, before we can we can do those. That would be what we'd call in our phase three, not in our stage three, because this uh, we're now going through the stages of reopening. But there are going to be some limited events that, that just aren't likely going to be possible in the near future. But we all hope to to get on to the to the next step, and, uh, and the first step will be getting uh, into stage two, hopefully across uh, the rest of the province as soon as possible. My final question I ask of you, not as the finance minister, Rod Phillips, but as Rod Phillips, the man, the person, what have you missed the most through COVID-19 and the closure of businesses? What has affected you personally? You know, my experience, Anne, has been a little bit different because uh, because there's been so much to do here in government. But frankly, I, I just miss uh, seeing people. It's it's a big part of the job that uh, the politicians do, but just that as a person, I, I like to do and and getting to see people in social settings and 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 not having to uh, you know not having to miss that. So you know, I think I think just the ability to to see each other, to talk, uh, and to uh, you know, we all are going to have a lot to share. I mean, this. This is going to be an experience, and I, I guess it's one of those things we have to notice because we're living through it, but we're all living through history right now, not just history in, in York and in Ontario, but uh, but internationally. And so I just think the sooner we can all talk and share about that in person, it's going to be uh, it's going to be special. Ontario Finance Minister Rod Phillips, thank you for joining us on the feed. We'll talk again. Thank you, Ann. Take care.
You're listening to The Feed on 105.9 The Region. I'm Ann Romer. Our next couple of stories focus on those sectors that drive our economy. First stop, the hospitality industry. Tina Cortez with The Comeback Plans. Tony Alanis is the president and CEO of the Ontario Restaurant, Hotel and Motel Association. Welcome to the show, Tony. Great to be on your show. Tell us a little bit about your association. Who and how many does it represent? Well, uh, our uh, association has been around uh, for many, many years. Uh, I was formed with the Ontario Hotel Association, the Ontario Restaurant Association. They merged in 1999. We have 4,000 members representing 12,000 businesses across Ontario. Now, no doubt that sector has been impacted by COVID-19. What are you hearing from your members? Well, the, the hospitality industry has been devastated. Our strength is about engaging, about networking, about socializing with people. It's all about people. That's who we are. And those characteristics have really have hit us on the heart because that's what we need to stay away from now. Uh, 94% of all the hotels uh, in Ontario closed. Uh, all the restaurants, with, except those that do takeout and delivery, have been closed, mandated to close back in March. We've, uh, we've had... Over 300,000 hospitality employees laid off or not working with any hours. So it, 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 is, uh, it is a huge and significant uh, catastrophe for our industry. It's certainly been devastating, no doubt. Now, particularly those small, maybe non-chain restaurants, can I ask you, do you think they're going to even survive? Yeah, well, you know, this industry, uh, one thing about it, you have many savvy operators any creative operators, resilient operators, and I do have faith that this industry is going to survive. But it's going to be a long road and a very painful road to recovery till some type of a medical breakthrough comes. Now, how do you think you're going to win back consumer confidence, though? Because that might be part of the problem, right? Yeah, we, we recognize that consumer trust is going to be a huge obstacle. I think we have done such a good job, and rightfully, we should have done it to ensure that people stay at home and practice distancing and, and don't uh, go out with groups. And now we need to rework that and ensure that once we start opening, that our restaurants are safe to invite back their customers. Uh, how do we do that? Well, we need to really change our operation with cleaning protocols from sanitization to take away the touchless type of uh, operational mechanics that we have. It's going to be more individual, more unique type of service, and we also need to practice distancing and, and practice it well. Now, there are some areas of the province we heard from the provincial government this week that are able to open for business. What kind of advice, what guidelines have you been providing those areas and those businesses at this time? Well, it is good that we're starting to see signs of opening up uh, Ontario, especially in the food service sector. But there's only a few regions that are open. Most of the populated regions, the GTA, Niagara, Escarpment, uh, Golden Horseshoe, Windsor, have not been open. And, and where they are open, they're only allowed to open outdoor patios. Uh, so it, it is not as bright, uh, bright as it might sound, but it's a good start. Uh, we, we have uh, pressures on our expense lines 
even in good old days, even before the virus. It's a slim margin industry. So one operator has to really do their math and their calculations before they decide to open because they'll have less people, less revenue, and less dollars coming in. And I assume then occupancy rates in motels and hotels uh, would change as well? Occupancy rates are in the early teens. We have 50% of all hotels in Ontario closed. Those have stayed open, have stayed open to service the health needs and the uh, temporary workers' needs who work, uh, by the way, in the, in the agricultural sector. And that's the reason we, we have uh, the rest of them open. If it wasn't for that, I would see about 95% of them closed. They are chosen as uh, essential business, and then they remain to be open. But without food and beverage operations, without their commercial areas, without meetings, it's going to be tough to generate the traffic that they need to be sustainable. And I know every situation, every environment is different, Tony, but what kinds of physical changes have been made to some of these restaurants and, and some of these establishments so that they can reopen for business in Toronto and the GTA when the time comes? The, the industry needs to be open and needs to be open with health and safety as a priority. So right now, there are no indoor restaurant rooms open or not even announced that they're open. But the protocols that are being in the planning stage for them to open and, and we, our organization, have developed a dine safe set of protocols that walk a customer right from the front entrance to the table, to the washroom, and out, and, and the payments included, and a set of protocols for the operator to ensure that they initiate in their operation. And it, and it has to do with, yes, have signage, uh, make sure the distancing is there. With Don't bring hard copy menus. If you use hard copy menus, uh, it should be the throwaway type. But start embracing technology and having a mobile device to QR codes of the, of the customer being the vehicle where they see the menu. Uh, we're talking about roll-ups of cutlery, not setups uh, as we traditionally see in restaurants. You know, so anything that is being able to be touched by many hands, that needs to go. And, and we need to be more, more on the individual basis. Uh, many, and again, it's competition that will differentiate uh, many in, in the industry. I believe all will end up having the basic essential protocols, but many will uh, start with temperature checks for employees. They'll start with fumigating the whole room, and then especially in the hotel rooms, the brands already started with that, uh, and, and many will follow. So there are different operational tasks that were not even imagined uh, that would be now part of the day-to-day -day, uh, hmm. operation. Now, you have over 35 years of industry experience. I, though, will assume you have never seen anything like this. The industry... Not that, at all. No, and I think it's, it's obviously going to change drastically after this. Do you think it's going to survive? What do you want to say to your members? It is going to be a long, painful road, but this industry is going to survive. Hospitality has been around forever and ever. And hospitality, before the virus hit, was growing in limbs and bounds. Hmm. I mean, we've had more supply in 2019, building in Ontario and continuing in 2020 than demand. 
and demand has been higher over the last four or five years. Globally, tourism, and of course hospitality goes with it, has been growing in leaps and bounds more than any other sector. And I think that will continue. Once we see that recovery, uh, we will see people eager to travel more than ever. And it's going to be a rebound, and it's going to rebound big. But till then, I think we need to be patient. I think we need to be resilient, and we need to just coast in a painful road, protecting our, our expenses as much as we can, knowing that the operation will be totally different, uh, both for employees and for our guests. If our listeners want to contact your association, how can they do that? Uh, we have a website, um, and, and, and a very popular website, goodorma.com, C-O-M. Uh, send us an email. Our email is there. It's info at orma.com, C-O-M. And uh, we welcome as many inquiries and, and anyone in the industry that needs support. And that's what we've been doing uh, since this virus uh, occurred. Uh, our, our, we have a great team in the office actually working from home, uh, most of them. And, and have been uh, answering inquiries uh, day and night, I'll be honest with you. It's that busy because the industry needs support and we're there to, uh, to help out. Tony Elenis, President and CEO of the Ontario Restaurant, Hotel and Motel Association, thank you for joining us on the feed. Thank you. My pleasure. Joining us next on the feed is Laura Dumphy, and she is the group publisher and president of Salon Magazine. Welcome to the show, Laura. Hi, Tina. Thank you for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. Before we get into the nitty-gritty, i got to tell you that the last few interviews that I've done, they've all begun with, I need a haircut badly, including ministers from the province, I have to tell you. Well, we certainly notice that on TV, <laughs> and I think if there's one industry, I, I joke with our team and a lot of our my fellow hairdressers out in our community, I love to say that, you know, the first hot thing when COVID started was toilet paper, then it moved to box color, which we never want to discuss, but uh, hairstyling and the relationship with your your hairstylist, your barber, and your nail tech, I tell you, it's pretty important. There's a lot of woolly-looking people out there. It sure is, and it's a big deal. So tell us a little bit about Salon Magazine. Is it for those in the industry? Yes, it is. Salon Magazine, Salon Magazine has been around 27 years, and we go coast-to-coast coast across Canada, and it is a magazine for uh, beauty professionals uh, to talk about things that interest them in terms of developing their business. It's a magazine of uh, inspiration, education, and everything that goes on within running a business in the beauty industry. The four walls there, we cover all kinds of topics. Now, earlier this week, the province announced some reopenings in some areas outside of Toronto and the GTHA. How are salons then changing or redesigning their physical space for the return to work? Well, this was great news to hear uh, for the GTHA, and of course Toronto's you know chomping at the bit to get opened as well. But the look of salons will change significantly, uh, and they've been very hard working at it almost from the get-go when uh, COVID hit and we got into a lockdown. So, uh, you know, the whole experience from when you walk into the door of how you're greeted by by the salon, the sanitization, uh, the mask, the, the, the shield that you'll be wearing. 
wearing. Um, the salon will look different in terms of uh, every second workstation will be utilized, every second thing. So, for instance, if you're in a salon and if they are doing shampoos uh, and there's three sinks, usually the middle sink will be closed off so to give some protection. Some salons will uh, have plexiglass in them and other salons might just get, uh, you know, some uh, like almost like a plastic wrap for, for protection. So they've been very busy in terms of um, in setting up their salons with all the tools to make the client feel comfortable. We've joked a little bit about, you know, everyone needing a color and a cut, but how are salon owners and stylists preparing to win their clients back and make them feel comfortable? Because gaining consumer confidence is key here. It certainly is. And uh, salons, again, have been preparing for so long. So thank God today with social media, many salons have a, ter- a terrific um, social media presence, and they also have a great website. So first of all, many salons have been communicating with their clients uh, all along talking about what they're going to be doing. And also on their website, you're seeing a lot of salons which will have a complete comprehensive document on all the things that they're going to be doing to make their clients feel comfortable. But uh, So that, that's going to be the first thing. And, yes, people may be wearing masks and a shield, but, you know, the relationship between the hairstylist and the client, there's nothing quite like it. So quite often it's a very personal relationship and it's almost an intimate relationship because quite often, whether it's the barber or the nail tech again or the hairstylist, they've been doing that client's hair for a very long time, probably, you know, from graduating from high school to their marriages to babies being born. So they, the clients, I think, do trust them. And I know a lot of salons, a lot of hairstylists, depending on the size of the business, they've actually been reaching out directly, talking to their clients over the phone, doing some FaceTime, actually even doing consultations. Because the client may say, oh, my gosh, look at my roots now. Should I go gray? Should I do this? Should I look at doing a new a new hairstyle? What? Or I screwed up my color with the, you know, I tried to do my color myself. <laughs> So it's because of that relationship, even though it may look a little bit off-putting when you first come in, but the salon, no. First and foremost is to make sure that client feels safe in the salon and protected and they're practicing all the necessary sanitation, disinfection, hygiene. And then secondly, once they get that cape around that client and the converse, well, I know the conversation's got to be a little slowed down on it, but, but they will feel back in the groove again. And I was, I will share this with you. I was talking to a very big group, a, a group called Chatter's Hair Salon, and they were telling me that the first day or so, you know, hairstylists were a little bit nervous, but they said after day one, because they're practicing, they have salons in Alberta and Manitoba and Saskatchewan, as well as Ontario, and they were saying that once the stylists got through those first few hours of the salon, they said, honestly, it felt like so comfortable. They were so happy to see those customers because it's a really, again, a loving relationship with those customers. Do you think there'll be an increase in costs due to fewer appointments, perhaps, to honor physical distancing guidelines? Yes, and I don't think the answer is complete on this yet. What we've seen in other provinces, and most likely it will happen, for sure it will happen in Ontario. And Salon Magazine, by the way, did a 
two fairly extensive surveys, and we did ask salon, uh, salon owners, do you expect to be increasing your prices? They won't be just doing a regular increase. They will probably have something that we'd they would might consider calling a COVID fee because we certainly know salons are incurring a, a lot of expense by bringing in all the tools that they'll need, all the sanitation, um, the staffing there to, to uh, manage, you know, just buying, even for some salons have put in plexiglass and uh, altered their reception area. So we're, uh, we're hearing anywhere from 5 to 10 to $15. It probably will depend on where they're located and obviously some of their overhead costs. And you're right about that. I mean, now, of course, the salon's going to be operating on 50% less clients coming through the door. So this is a real concern. Salons have taken a terrible beating uh, by not being able to open their businesses. They've been out of work for three months. And not everybody uh, has been able to take advantage. Well, a lot of people have taken advantage of some of the federal government um uh, subsidies and whatever, but not all landlords have been good to salons. I've heard some really terrible stories. So salons will, may have to find some ways of trying to manage about bringing back, um, what the prices will be like. So maybe a haircut will be, it'll be a dry haircut, maybe no blow dry, but it will be the same price as they were paying before. But uh, not unlike sometimes, you know, if you're going to restaurants or whatever, I mean, I've been, you know, ordering sushi or picking up sushi, and my when I have my takeout sushi, it's, it's the price of a dinner, not a lunch. So I think, you know, small businesses are trying to figure out how to be able to manage, to be able to make a living, and they're very nervous, though. They want to make sure that they don't want to look like they're taking advantage of their clients. It's a very sensitive topic. We know that. For sure. Laura, can I get your best guess on when you think the doors will be open for business in our local salon? Well, I think, you know, in uh, the greater area, in the Markham area, we know the salons are going to be opening on Friday. But for the Toronto area, we expect there will be another announcement uh, next uh, Monday. We are hoping, I mean, that's all we can do is that they will, they will say June 19th. Maybe it might be another week. I mean, salons have been preparing for this for so long. They know more about hygiene. And just to share with you, you know, the Department of Health is sending inspectors in. They've always done that for years in the, the greater Toronto area. So salons are very comfortable. They're up and they're ready to go. They may have some of the best practices in most businesses. But we're really keeping our fingers crossed for June 19th. But I honestly, I can't, I don't know. I don't have a crystal ball. Laura Dumphy is the group publisher and president of Salon Magazine. I'm going to give you the last word. What's your message to our listeners? Well, um, for, our, for all your listeners out there, and as their hair has been growing and their roots are showing, please call your salons. Go back and support your salons. Support some uh, small business. Support your barbers, your nail techs. They are waiting for you, and they, as I mentioned earlier, they cannot wait. I'm seeing comments all over Facebook. They're, everybody's doing the happy dance who've opened up. So be patient with them. Don't, not to worry that you will be well looked after when you get in there. It may look a little bit different, but please remember, support small business and your local salon. This is the feed on 105.9 The Region. I'm Ann Romer. Retailers, banks, restaurants, pharmacies, everywhere we go now, we see plexiglass shields. Jim Lang with a local company working round the clock to keep up with demand. 
One of the great things about York Region is the way the community and businesses and manufacturing and all sorts of members of society have stepped up to help in the COVID-19 situation. And one of those that really stand out is Pather Plastics and Pather Display of Markham. Thrilled to be speaking to their CEO, Neville Pather, about what they have done to help people in this time. Neville, how are you? Jim, good morning, and uh, thank you very much for having me on the show. Well, it's a real pleasure. Uh, Pather Plastics, over 40 years of manufacturing in the Markham, Unionville area, serving York Region, serving uh, businesses and countries and clients around the world. But obviously, you and the rest of the company saw something that needed to be done. At what point did you decide to switch over and start making PPE for those in need? Um, Jim, we've been in this industry, uh, we've been making plexiglass and acrylic displays for, as you know, for 40 plus years. And this was a very easy transition. Um, what happened was that uh, one of the major groceries uh, chains approached us and all the shields, the counter shields just fell into place. And from there, we are just, uh, Jim, we've been doing from restaurants to professional health care to retailers to the banks. Um, it's been a very interesting uh, six to seven months. Well, I mean, Neville, I mean, for a lot of people, I know my wife and I, we go shopping. It's the new normal. When you go, there's just a, a plexiglass, you say, acrylic shield between you and the cashier, and there's that little window for you to tap. That That's what we're going to have for, for a long time, I think. Jim, you're absolutely correct, and I think that, uh, you know, as consumers and even uh, we've got to be a little more mindful of, of our surroundings, and we have to protect each other in order to get by this uh, very interesting time period. I keep hearing, Neville, that uh, fitness centers and gyms are thinking about using that sort of plexiglass acrylic shields between cardio equipment. Has uh, Have you heard about that as well? Uh, we are, Jim. We being we are being approached by all the fitness centers, uh, um, the casinos. Um, it's been really interesting. Even uh, uh, we just shipped to Alaska. Um, very interesting for the uh, fishery department in Alaska. Um, this the shields are becoming, as you say, the new norm in a global sense. Have you ever seen anything like this, Neville, in all your years of manufacturing in plastics and displays, that the need and the demand for this kind of product? Uh, Jim, it's stunning. We're working. We're literally working 24-7 uh, to meet everybody's demand. But the interesting thing is that everybody's coming with custom. Right. There's no set formula, and everybody's trying to fit, uh, I guess, a square peg into a square hole. Um, you know, I don't think there's enough time in the day to, to just deal with everything that's coming at us, and we're trying to do our best at Pather Plastics Canada. Speaking with Neville Pather, the CEO of Pather Plastics, based in Markham, um, servicing York Region and the world for decades, and now dealing with the new normal, switching over manufacturing to meet the demand for what retail and everything else has to deal with. Uh, hospitals are always talking about the need for PPE and plastic shields. How have you guys been able to help Markham Stobel Hospital and other health care centers in the region and the GTA with their demand for PPE, Neville? Um, Jim, on an individual basis, we've tried to handle everybody um, from, you know, everybody's looking at their own shapes and sizes and what we're trying to do is listen to everybody's demand and uh, trying to work with them individually so that they are feel protected. This is about protection and it's about just, you know, as a Markham company, um, it's 
we're very humbled to be able to give back all the time. And we're, the other thing is we're meeting some very interesting people, um, especially in the, in every industry and we're learning and learning and, and things that we did not expect, uh, people to come to us, um, even, normal individual restaurant tours who just need the divider in between the, their you know their uh, sitting uh, apparatuses and things like that and that's the thing Neville I mean I, I know you're, you're being humble you have dealt with uh, US politicians world leaders uh, CEOs around the world dealing with things and now all of a sudden companies are coming to you with uh, problems you have to come up with a solution plastic in, in your field of uh, plastics that just never had even been thought about before um, Jim, it's I can't put this in words, and I think I'm sure a lot of the PPE suppliers are uh, dealing with different things. Um, it's just I've never ever seen anything like this before, and you know the beauty about this is if you can solve a problem for somebody, um, you're in a sense. And I talked about this earlier. You're giving back. For people in your line of work, Neville, in Markham, around the country, around the world, is there a consensus that this demand for PPE and plastic shields and acrylic and dividers is going to be here for a long time? Um, Jim, we don't see this going away for a bit. Um, we see that the demand is going to be uh, maybe another 12 to 14 months, um, and obviously it's going in stages. Um, I think that the... The general public, I think they, where the big issue is here is I think they've got to be very cognizant of, of, you know, whether they're wearing masks and, you know, um, the gloves and, and this is what's going to happen to make this go away. Uh, we have to be diligent as a society, um, to make this a better place right now. Neville, I, I know you're a dedicated family man. You're, you have philanthropic the tendencies you give back to the community. Uh, I'm dealing with teenagers, how hard is it to convince them to wear protective gear when you're dealing with this every day? Um, it's funny, Jim, you mentioned that because I happen to be out. Uh, I had an installation. Our team had an installation on the weekend, and we saw a lot of teenagers together, and they just, I think they think they're invincible. Um, and that's, you know... And, uh, and we're finding a lot of adults, too, where they think they're invincible and it will not affect them. But this, uh, Jim, I think this one's a game changer for all of us. Yeah, I, I know my wife and I, we, we're just not comfortable going into a store without our you know, non-medical mask. And we have our little hand sanitizer we use faithfully before and after we go to a store. We just don't want to take a chance. You're absolutely right. And, you know, the... And I think the hospitals, like Markham Stoll Hospital, they're like amazing. And these people in there who are working, they're on the line every day. They will tell you, you have to be protect yourself and protect others. And I don't think this is a time for us as society to be selfish. I think we have to think about other people and, and you know, how we touch things and um, just all those little things that will make this disappear. For more details on Pather Plastics and Markham, if you have a need and you need some protective shields, you can get a hold of them on their website, Pather, P-A-T-H-E-R, Pather.com, and get more details. Neville Pather is the CEO of Pather Plastics. Neville, a real pleasure, my friend, and uh, keep up the great work and uh, continued success of protecting us in this COVID-19 world we live in now. Jim, thank you so much for having Pather Plastics Canada on your show. And to 105.9 The Region, you guys are just absolutely amazing, and you give back just with your heart. Thank you so much, Jim.
I'm Ann Romer. This is the feed on 105.9 The Region. Over to Afuaba next and the technology available to support safe openings. We are hearing about new tech to help the shopping experience as we continue to find the best ways to live with COVID-19. So joining me to chat today about this new technology, Michael Gurgis, co-founder of Big Digital. Michael, thank you so much for joining me today. Hi, thanks for having me. It is our pleasure. Okay, so we're hearing about digital entranceway technology. If you can give us some background on it and how it will basically work. Sure. So we're all trying to plan our days a little bit differently these days. And as we look at um, leaving our home, going to a grocery store, soon enough going to a building or, or other places as, as lockdown measures lift, we looked at how could we help as a Canadian innovation company and develop a, a system that could help move people, that could help uh, provide confidence and comfort to the consumer but also operational efficiencies for operators um, using real-time information, today's technology, um, and real-time communications. So imagine walking up to uh, a store and knowing exactly from a screen, uh, you know, at the entranceway, or perhaps scanning a QR code and getting that information to your phone, um, what's the wait time? Um, what are the important pieces of information that I need to know before I walk into this location? If it's a retail store, is there any products that are out of stock uh, just in case I'm there for particular things? So it's really the uh, safe check is answering to what we feel will be the new almost normal or new normal Um but certainly helps consumers move around in this new reality. We've heard about details regarding stage two, and this will help those businesses that are starting to reopen, but it could also help those who have already reopened. If you can talk to us about how this could help businesses improve on the shopping experience for consumers. Well, I think one of the biggest things that um, every operator is trying to uh, plan and figure out is how do we safely move people around? And that's not just the consumer. That's their employees as well. How are we taking care of people once they get here? How are we best managing queue lines? And I think even those that have been open and, you know, have been trying to figure it out in real time, just just the fact that there's a queuing system now. Like, imagine... Before you leave your home, it's like the digital uh, ticket that you get from the old deli way back, or if you, you know, go to a location that still have them where I pulled, you know, number 71, um, it's digitally doing that. So imagine being able to say, I want to go to this location at 4.15, I've reserved my, my time to walk in, and... Now I have, uh, you know, less of an unknown of what I'm walking into because now I'm queuing myself into getting into that location. And those are things that are going to be new. We're going to look back and go, wow, remember when we didn't have to queue ourselves in? These are going to be the things that are going to help businesses today and those that are going to be opening scale because it's excellence in how people are being 
um, sort of people are navigating to places and how businesses are, are moving people around. So aside from consumers or this helping consumers specifically, you said this could help even businesses. So ideally, where would we see safe checks being set up? Any location that needs to um, manage density, crowd control, um, communications. Um, so I would say um, from grocery stores to big box stores to large high-rises in downtown Toronto when there's a whole other level of queuing. So imagine we talked about, you know, queuing. Did you, did, you know, instead of saying, honey, did you make a reservation? It might be like, honey, did you queue us in yet? There's another layer of that when you talk about high-rise buildings and elevator rides. So there's a whole other um, layer of planning when you have to get up to a high rise, you have to get to the 27th floor and back down. And then, then there's a certain amount of people that can get into an elevator now and a certain amount of people that can wait in the lobby. So from high rise buildings to grocery stores, to transit, to malls, I mean, really, uh, this is, this is going to be important for any kind of business. And that's why when we built it um, and continue to, to sort of refine it and, and listen to, you know, what the, the trials and tribulations are for any size of business, we wanted to make it accessible to every kind of business so that um, everyone could use this technology so that everyone benefits from it. Really is back to expectation management. Mm-hmm. Uh, and sensors and software and just making people feel like uh, they're taken care of. And so I have a bit of a scenario that I have in mind, if you could maybe help me out. In terms of whether it either be a mall or even a high-rise building, and if there's maybe multiple entrances to that one place, how um, then does the technology help in setting up to ensure that there is maybe not a miscount or that there isn't uh, more people than there should be in that one area. That takes us right to the innovation piece. It takes us to the sensors that, that allow for that to happen. Um, for multiple entrances, these sensors correlate um, the amount of people walking in and out. So um, with multiple um, exits and entranceways, um, there's constant real-time data and correlation between the sensors. So, and, and, and these are, these are sensors that have been, um, people counting in malls and large venues for quite some time. Um, so it's, it's technology that's been around, but certainly advanced much more so that it, it, it provides exactly the amount of people based on this new, uh, capacity that every building is going to have to adhere to so that operators um, can, again, um, work efficiently. It's not um, the amount of people getting clicked in and clicked out, which has been a traditional way of counting people going in and out of a venue. Um, so it's it really has to do with the innovation piece. The, si- the, the sensors and the innovation certainly helps with the, with the precise 
uh, number of people inside a location. And so we're seeing basically how technology and analytical data coming together to help us in this particular situation uh, with the COVID-19 pandemic. Can you talk to me about the importance of these two groups, technology and analytical data, coming together in order to maybe um, help improve our day-to-day lives? Well, I think it's, to your point, I think it's, it's more important than ever that technology is helping um, with creating you know, tools for expectation management. And we, we usually look at this and say, like, we believe that um, innovation and experiences like this um, are kind of futuristic, you know. Um, and so when you think about that and you think about what the pandemic has done and, and, and we hear it in sort of different sectors and categories, but it's truly brought innovation and um, and new technology uh, forward by a decade, or even more than that. So these are these are systems and things that would have probably been implemented in the future in different iterations and queuing yourself into lineups and just this being more efficient way of 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 moving around and, and getting into places. But the pandemic has certainly moved us to this place much faster. If residents or maybe businesses want more info and, you know, are curious as to how they can have this technology set up in their business, I know you mentioned earlier, not necessarily for the big box stores, but it also can include all types of businesses, maybe possibly the mom and pop shops too. So where could they go for more info in in terms of learning more about this technology? Yeah, thank you. To learn more info about SafeCheck, go to bigdigital.ca. It'll be the first thing that you see on the website. And um, it'll, you'll be able to see, uh, you know, the products, uh, the mobile uh, elements and, and the screens and the structures for, for sort of larger installations, but the, all, all the information's on the website. And really appreciate um, you guys covering SafeCheck. Michael Gurgis, co-founder of Big Digital. Thank you so much for your time. We appreciate it. Thank you. So how about wrapping up the feed on a high note? Participation House Markham announcing at the start of this week that the COVID-19 outbreak had been officially declared over by York Region Public Health. The Executive Director of Participation House, Shelley Brillinger, joins us now to talk about the journey. Shelley, thank you so much. So that's very good news, but it was a long road to get to even a point where the outbreak could be declared over. Let's go back in time to April. April, uh, when all heck broke loose at Participation House. Mm-hmm. Thank you for having me, and I appreciate uh, I appreciate the time. We have been through something life changing here at Participation House Markham. I think our PH family uh, collectively will be forever changed. But ultimately, if we take time back uh, at the beginning of. Uh, April, we were sort of like the rest of the province waiting to see what this COVID um, pandemic was going to mean for us. Uh, We were ordering PPE, we had supplies, we had um, training in terms of proper usage for our staff and all of that type of thing. We were working with public health actually um, in the weeks before that uh, related to some cold and flu symptoms, that type of thing that were at that time 
swabbed and believed not to be COVID-related. Um, and then, you know, as things kind of progressed into April, we had, um, I think it was early, the first week of April, we had a few residents demonstrate some symptoms of maybe a runny nose here, a cough here, uh, a couple of fevers overnight. Nothing earth-shattering, but ultimately um, we, in short order, learned after swabbing that those residents uh, were positive, and that changed everything here. Um, those who were working day in and day out with our residents um, felt under very different circumstances that, you know, they needed to, to look after um, their, their needs as well as their families or any other reasons that they weren't able to be here. And in many cases, people were actually uh, sick themselves. So um, basically, we had a staffing crisis on top of a pandemic crisis. So how were you able to ride this out? It's taken a village. Um, you know, I say that often, and, and it really has. I mean, ultimately, it was about uh, reaching out and getting the resources that we needed when we needed them. Uh, we've worked closely with the union, closely with um, community partners like Markham Stovall Hospital and some physicians and uh, nurse practitioners. Um, basically, people who'd come forward, uh, Mayor Frank Scarpitti and uh, his amazing team, everyone showed up. When we put the call out that we uh, had identified that we were having uh, a staffing shortage that left us with, you know, less than 10 people here caring for uh, 42 individuals over the Easter weekend, people showed up and they showed up big in different ways. So we, you know, we worked together to try to cobble together appropriate uh, staffing. Uh, we had food, food coming from the hospital. Um, we had uh, HR support uh, being leveraged from, from Markham Civil Hospital as well. We had PPE being, uh, you know, rallying the community for PPE. Frank Scarpitti was at the, at the helm, uh, you know, calling for help in that regard. So basically we just shored up any resources and any community support that was there, and there was a lot. Um, and truly, through that, we kind of got our um, our balance. What started off as a staffing shortage did, as we knew, um, progress, unfortunately, into a health crisis. And because we had those uh, key players in, including, it wouldn't be right to not shout out uh, to Jane Philpott, Dr. Jane Philpott. Um, she came. I called her Easter Sunday morning. And she was here within two hours, and um, I just said, can you please come and see if I'm missing something? I don't know who else to call. And from there, we, we just drove through it, and sadly, we did have some losses of some very important people in our family here, um, but now we're starting to come out the other side, and we just need to keep going at this point. Let's pay tribute to the residents that you lost. You lost six uh, beautiful human beings uh, to COVID-19. What do you say about them and what do you say to their families? Oh, Anne, um, I promised myself I wouldn't cry here. Um, I, I just would like their families to know how loved each and every one of those individuals are by everyone here at Participation House. I won't get into their names. Uh, I know there's some families that just asked for the privacy, um, you know, to be there. Um, we love and adore everyone who lives here, and I think that's the thing you'll find if you visit Participation House when uh, we're able to have visitors again. They will get you by the heart, and they won't let go. And for us, our hearts are broken. Um, they were broken six times. Every time we lost one of our own, it was 
a really hard thing to bear. And to be honest, we still have lots of um, honoring for them and celebrating of their lives and acknowledgement for them. Now that we're finally out of outbreak, we can turn our attention to uh, memorializing each of them in a way that is meaningful because that's such a big part of um, our healing as an agency as well to acknowledge those we loved and um, you know it's, it's not been it's been the most difficult part of the, of the journey so I would let families know um, our hearts are broken we would um, be remiss to not to let let families know how, how deeply impacted we all are by that law those losses Shelley, what have you learned through this? What needs to change, and how do you move forward now? I think what needs to change, and uh, I've had many conversations um, with different different people about this, but I think ultimately um, I'm a nurse. I do come from a health background, but coming into the developmental sector uh, a few years ago, um, it's an amazing sector. Um, it's It's... The, the work that is done here is an art and a science. It is caring for people in their home and incredibly um, empowering people to live their best lives despite any challenges they may have around um, their mobility or feeding or anything that they need in terms of daily care needs. Um, it is a powerful type of work that goes on here. I have to say, though, I find it is one of those really important bodies of work that is done quietly in the background and by so many dedicated folk and technically I think what's happened here is you know we were put uh, the sector the developmental sector among other sectors have been put under a a crushing weight by COVID-19 pandemic and what that means for any any structure any any um, um, sector and unfortunately it it shows the cracks when you do that and I think what is really uh, important is looking at the needs uh, of these, uh, this population, the special needs of adults and, and, and children with developmental and, and physical disabilities. This is a, a huge area where we should be looking at how do we keep people safe, how do we uh, provide the best care, and where's the resourcing going forward to, um, to ensure that, as well as the, the overlay of health uh, because people are whole and they may, they may belong to one ministry, but they might have a health issue. So, and in fact, they, many they do. Um, so, those the overlay of those two ministries is hugely important. But you know, it's not for the faint of heart because it is pioneering work, and and it's something that we can do better going forward in the province. I'm sure if we work together. So, in other words, the six lives lost, they did not die in vain. No, absolutely not. And, and we we all come to work every day, um, so that those voices are still heard. And that we that we carry those messages forward, so that we all learn and do better. And when when you go through something like this, I think the only thing you can do is look at in future what what could we put in place uh, provincially that would you know would protect the most vulnerable in our society. And how do we do that together with every everyone bringing their strengths and their expertise? You know, whether it be from one sector or another, it doesn't matter. How do, where do we go from here and how do we get it done? Shelley Brillinger, the Executive Director of Participation House Markham, thank you so much for joining us on the feed. Thank you, Anne. For the very latest developments on COVID-19 and exclusive updates from York Region's Medical Officer of Health, go to 1059theregion.com. I'm Anne Romer. Thank you for listening.